Well, Romans 6 picks up where um, we left off last week, and that is Paul is trying to explain very carefully his concept of what God's grace and righteousness means. And it's a very different concept from what the the Jews and the and the Gentile converts of the period were used to. Now remember, just to kind of review, <clears throat> that for a, a Jew or even a pagan religious follower of the first century, your salvation and, and not even salvation, your favor that you court with, with God or with the gods was dependent on your actions, okay? So think about <clears throat> all of the pagan sacrifices you've read about, right, in antiquity. Um, for different festivals or different religious events during the year or even um, regularly as, as you as a person who wants maybe favor from the gods for rain for your crops or to increase the business uh, and commerce of your, of your business, whatever that is, um, <clears throat> you would do things that you thought would, would gain the favor of the gods that were in charge of that particular activity so that you could benefit from it. <clears throat> now, a lot of that benefit was earthly focused, meaning, again, if I'm a farmer, I want it to rain, I want my crops to grow, and I want to make money from that. If you were selling something, you would want more business. Um, <clears throat> if you were sick, you would want the gods uh, of the universe to heal you of your illness. And of course, there were different gods for different illnesses or different uh, issues in your life. That extended, of course, to Judaism in the sense that, <clears throat> yeah, um, absolutely, the Jews would say, I would want to court Yahweh's favor. And how do I court Yahweh's favor? Be good. Be good. And what do you mean by be good? Follow the law. Follow the law. <clears throat> in this case... Um, a devout Jew of the first century would say this, we're talking of course about the Mosaic laws. So the 10 commandments plus all of the other laws of Exodus, Leviticus, and, and, and essentially the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. If I do those things, it's like a checklist. <clears throat> it's a checklist for me to attain favor, to attain uh, benefit. You could call it grace in the sense of, uh, again, favor or even salvation. And so if you were a, a Pharisaic Jew of the first century, you would believe in spirits, you would believe in an afterlife, you would believe in a resurrection of the body and the soul. <clears throat> now, Paul is coming at it in a very different message. This is completely different. What he's saying is this idea that this favor that you are courting with God is not something that you are doing. It is not something that is a checklist that you are you are somehow trying to check off like the Mosaic laws, like someone handed you a cheat sheet and here's, here's all the Mosaic laws. You just go through that list, start checking off what you've been doing. And if you, you check off enough of them, God will show favor to you. So here's the question. I'm actually gonna preload, I think, our studies here as we go forward with kind of the questions I'm, I'm asking that I want you to think about. And I also want to say <clears throat> that if, if you've been a student in this class long enough, you'll know that sometimes I don't answer your questions directly and that might aggravate you. Um, my point here is to say these are questions I think a lot of people ask or people in the, in the New Testament are asking. And I will show you the biblical evidence to support some answers. Sometimes it's not as easy as saying yes or no to some of these, but it's saying, okay, show me the verses in the New Testament or even the Old Testament that support um, answers to these questions. So what are they? First of all, and this is kind of the key for Romans 6, I think, which is, does Jesus' love for you excuse your bad behavior? No. 
And right off the bat, she's answering. No, straight answer. Okay. And, and that's good. And, and think about that. Think about this as we go through this today. And some of these you probably think you have a very straight answer. Here's another one. What master do you serve? Maybe that's a little more complicated. Think about that one. And by serve, I mean you're a servant of that master. And think about what it means to be a servant of a master. What about this one? Is righteousness, and think about what righteousness means, is that earned or is it demonstrated? And when I ask you some of these questions, it might not be either or. Think about that too. Here's a good one. Here's, here, you know, and I kind of debated this today if I was going to actually talk about this. Sometimes I throw these bombs and then I think I shouldn't have thrown that bomb. I wasn't ready to defend it. I'm probably never ready to defend this one. Is baptism required for salvation? What did you say? Is baptism required for salvation? And what is what do I mean by baptism? What is Christian baptism? Here's another one. Does salvation your salvation lead to moral perfection. And, and another one, and again, if you have other questions, we can add to this. Here's my last one. Does obedience lead to salvation or is it the other way around? Now thinking about all these questions, and I'm sure uh, some of them you probably have a very strong answer and that's great, let's talk about that. <clears throat> We're gonna jump into Romans six here. And so I think, I am going to do one thing before we actually jump into the word, and that is I'm going to give a very brief synopsis of what I mean by baptism and what is baptism in the first century. And if you've been in this class before, I've talked about this a few times. Um, In general, the concept of ritual cleaning or cleansing goes back to the dawn of, of the human age, okay? This idea that If I physically clean myself on the outside, I am somehow cleaning myself spiritually or morally. So that is a practice that goes back ages, um, right even to the beginning of time. And so what was it to someone in the first century? Well, you have to remember that by the time we get to the first century, this idea of, of ritual cleansing, and maybe I should write it that way too. Let's see. Ritual cleansing. Somewhere in the Bible, the Pharisees washed their hands before, after they, you know, went shopping, whatever, and, and okay. Jesus said, you know, now you, you're just white boy. You're not yep. clean. The inside's still dirty. Let's let's do that then. So, you're saying it was okay. So we had Pharisees who would clean themselves. Um, in what context again? Their cups and their dishes and their hands. Okay. They said, you know, the disciples didn't do that. And Jesus said, well, okay. or the apostles. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, you know, you're just whitewashing. Ah, okay. Yep, yep, not, very good. You're not clean on the inside. Sweet, you, you, sweetheart, you could teach this class. You really could. Because you're, you're, you're doing a great job. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. No, no. You're, you're going to be up here next week. Oh, no. <laughs> what other forms of ritual cleansing do we have in antiquity? Or even according to the Bible. It was a disease thing too. Oh, okay. Okay. And what do you mean by that? So, like, you know, you have the example in uh, one of the Gospels of the lepers. Mm-hmm. When you heal them, they had to go like clean themselves and then yep. show themselves to the priest. Yes, very good. Contagious anymore. 
That's excellent, Heather. And um, I'm going to add to that, there was a whole list of things in the Mosaic Laws that said if you were a good Jew, there were certain things that you had to cleanse yourself from. One of them was disease. Another was if you touched a dead body. Um, So there's there's disease. There is, um, uh, I'm going to call it defilement. Maybe that's defile. Defilement. Um, if you were a Jewish a woman and it was your time of the month, you weren't allowed to touch people. And if someone touched you, then they had to be ritually cleansed and you had to be ritually cleansed. So there was certain, um, I won't write it up here, but <laughs> certain biological things. Oh, I'll just say biological things. <clears throat> Logical issues. Um, so, so yes, you're absolutely right. Now, what was the practice of ritual cleansing? Well, all the way back, um, since the beginning of Judaism, there was this idea of this ritual cleansing. And and here's another one. I think this is really good, and it kind of comes with the Pharisee thing. It was more of what the priests did. And I would even say the lay people. It was any time there was a religious um, ceremony. Like, for instance, if you were a priest and you were going to go into the temple, you had to ritually cleanse yourself before you went in there. If you were going to attend... Um, you know, uh, partake in a religious ceremony that was that was either Jewish based or was was held at the temple. You would have to uh, cleanse yourself. Now, the Jews had this basin with steps. Look at how terrible that is. Two D basin that they called a mikvah. I think I've I've used that word before. This is a really important one. Um, it was basically a giant bathtub, and this was. There were both public and private mikvahs, and when it was time for you to be ritually cleansed, you would go down and cleanse yourself in this. The Herod's temple, the temple of, of Jesus and his disciples, had mikvahs in the public areas. And before Jesus' message, that would be a place where you would come and you would you would wash yourself, and then you could, you know, people would be able to publicly say, Yes, you have been washed, and I, I can verify that. Now, all of this kind of implies something that is what? what? What's the problem with this whole thing? Before we get to the era of, of Christian baptism and Christian you know, cleansing, what is the idea here? What is the, what's the flaw here? You can get dirty again. This is temporary, folks. Every time you defiled yourself or had a biological issue, or you got sick, or you needed to do some religious ceremony, you would have to wash yourself again. Um, and, and, and on and on it goes. So there is no sense here of permanence. This is temporary. Do they change the water each time between people? That's a good question. That's a good question. I don't think they had Calgon or... Uh, yeah. Well, that's kind of it, right? Yeah, really, the first person is the only one clean. We should look this up. Uh, it's a good point. Ah, okay, what do you mean by that? I, it's hard for me to define. Like, a river is living water. Is yeah, moving. I see so what you're saying, yep. If, it, if you just had stagnant mm-hmm. water in a bowl that's been sitting around for a while, they wouldn't use that. But if you were to collect a little bit of fresh rain and uh-huh. put it in with it, uh-huh. they would then consider that living water. I don't know why. This is a good point, actually. Yep. Well, it gets at a good point. And I think what you're getting at is, is a scientific kind of thing, which is... Um, if you go out into the wild 
Um, and look, I'm not a survivalist, but from what I understand, people that survive in the wild will say, if you have a fresh spring coming out of the earth that's flowing, that tends to be, quote, cleaner <laughs> than a stagnant pool where animals are pooping into it, right? And so um, both are, both are disease-ridden. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. But yes, it's this idea that living, flowing water, I totally get that. So in fact, this idea of ritual cleansing was really important to the Jews of the first century. And, and I've talked about the Essenes before. Who are the Essenes? Do you guys remember? And what, uh, what famous documents did we find that they wrote? The Dead Sea Scrolls. So these are, the, these are essentially Jewish monks living just outside Jerusalem, um, near the Dead Sea area. It's a place called Qumran, which is where they were found, but I think that there were some set different settlements. These were essentially, they were, they were um, apocalyptic, messianic Jewish monks who were very concerned with, with ritual cleansing. And they had these mikvahs, and, and anyone who became a convert to Judaism or wanted to enter the, the community of the Essenes had to go through this ritual cleansing. Anyway, long story short is, that's kind of the old model. Then we get, yeah, Jeremy. Before you move on <coughs> yeah. about the Essenes and mikvahs, mm -hmm. you should know that Qumran itself is modeled after Jerusalem. Ah, so okay. So there's similarities in the way that they're set up. That's really cool. You know what? Um, if I can find a floor plan, maybe I'll put it on the video. Um, but yeah, I think I've heard that before. Like they tried to model it after the temple and all of that. Um, fast forward now to the time of John the Baptist. Now we're, now we're in the first century and we have John the Baptist. What's, what's he doing? <laughs> His name implies it all, right? He's baptizing, baptizing people. <clears throat> John, I'm sorry, yes, John the Baptist makes a very famous comment here. Let me see if I can find the right quote here. Matthew 3. Let me see if I got it right here. Matthew 3. Okay. 11 to 12. Yeah. I, you know what? I wasn't going to do this. I think we should read Matthew 3. 1 to 12. You know what? Let's read the whole thing. This is a Bible study class. Let's do that. Let's do Matthew 3, all of it. Who would like to read all of Matthew 3 for me? Because this is a really important one. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We are, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came to Galilee, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, re then he consented. And when Jesus was, ba was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Thank you, Roger. What is Christian baptism? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface this by saying we are one step closer to that. Maybe what I should say here is John's baptism is one thing. It is going to be transformed into a final state when Jesus comes. And Jesus now, in this passage, gets baptized. So John is kind of um, uh, foreshadowing what Christian baptism will mean. What is Christian baptism? What are its elements? Okay, so there is a sense of immersion. There's a sense of water. Is that all? Okay, there's a sense of repentance. What is repentance? It's a 180. Repentance is a 180. What does that mean? A change of thinking, a, a transformation of thinking. It's not just, oh, I'm sorry I got caught. It's, I'm going to change. Change. Away. You turn away from it. <clears throat> what are some other characteristics of Christian baptism? Bearing fruit. Ooh. Bearing fruit. What do you mean by that? Ah, okay. So there's... Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Christian baptism, first and foremost, is done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Whereas John's baptisms were not. Yep. Yep, yep. His was probably just this, right? And so there's another key key term in here that sets this apart from all from all other types of ritual cleansing. He'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is it. This is it. This cannot be emphasized enough. And to some degree, every single one of these things you can find elements of in previous ritual cleansing, there is one thing that is completely new here. This idea of the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll be careful with this. <clears throat> this is something distinct from the water. And even John himself admits it. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one 
who we believe is Jesus of Nazareth, who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry, he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. Folks, Christian baptism is not only water. And we will read Bible verses today in which you can be baptized in Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with water. They are, they are distinct events. They are related. They are distinct. Someone raise their hand. Jeremy. Um, I don't know. I'm just feeling like you should put under the Holy Spirit. You should put uh, death to the law or dead to the law. Okay. We can do that. I don't know if that's going too far. That's what I would say. Kind of refers to John says here that Ooh, this is good. We should do all that. the good stuff that you do is because of Jesus. So he, he'll gather huh? the wheat into the barn, but he'll burn up the chaff. Okay. Meaning uh, forgiveness. So yep. All your bad stuff's going to be forgiven. Okay. All your good stuff's going to be for his glory, for his. Yep. Because of Jesus' goodness to us. And, and here is, and I'm going to just say it, and you, I'm sure you're not going to be able to read this. Christian baptism represents something very profound. What does Christian baptism in its immersion and it's, and you know, we, we've all seen the people, and you've probably, for those of you who have been baptized through immersion, you stand in a pool of water, you hold your nose, the, the, the pastor says something profound, you go back, you, you lift back up again. What has just happened there? You died and you surrendered. Come back a new person. You partook of Jesus' You have just summed up the entire thing. Very good. We're done. We can go home. You, get, you guys get it. In contrast to your yep. original clipping above, this one is considered permanent. Like this is that. another good one. This. You don't have to do it multiple times. And this is another controversial one. And I'm going to put quotes because this will get people riled up. It is meant to be permanent. This is, this gets at this whole idea of, you know, the tie between what I would call the physical act of baptism, which is the immersion part, the water part, the public display part, how closely related it is to circumcision for the Jewish community. Remember, we've just spent five chapters now of Paul basically torching the belief that somehow you being a son of Abraham through, through your race or your physical circumcision somehow has fixed you on the inside. What is Paul's argument with that? What is Paul's argument with the physical circumcision, how it relates to your, your true heart? It's, an out, it's just an outward act. It's just, it's, it's an outward sign of something that should be happening on the inside. And so he makes the argument that circumcision should be of the what? It should be of your heart. The same is true of this kind of the, the outward signs, to some degree, of Christian baptism. 
But what it should represent is the inward peace, which is what here? This is the Holy Spirit peace, okay? Let's go ahead and actually read from Romans. Jump ahead here. And my oldest daughter got baptized. My granddaughter Ariel was three or four years old, and she knew enough that when her mom came up out of the water, she'd be a different person, but she didn't understand how. Excellent, yep. She didn't want her to get baptized because she liked her the way she was. But she, uh, you know, did, of course, get baptized. That is so cute. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> What's, what's interesting there is that she probably understood baptism more than some Christians who are adults. Something was about to change in her mommy. Yeah. Something was about to change. Now, she was scared of that change. But that, that speaks volumes, I think, to this childlike understanding of what this faith is. It's not just I'm going to show up on Sunday, I'm going to get baptized, and a bunch of people are going to get like on my Facebook page. That's not the point. Something inside is changing, and you guys are all hitting it perfectly. This represents this idea of you are dying with Jesus and you are being resurrected again. So let's read that. And it becomes a point mm-hmm. of reference too, like a, okay. like a count, like some accountability in my life. Okay. I, I, I got baptized and I said, I'm a follower of Jesus. Nice. I can remember that with a certain amount of shame in my life, okay. in my heart, and say, ooh. Now here's a twist. Okay. I'm just yep. being the advocate here. Yep. Or, I don't want to say devil because <laughs> that really isn't true either. You look at the circumcision. When mm-hmm. was it done? When they were infants. Yep. And later on they had kind of, I mean, you can see the parallel between yep. inf- infant baptism yep. and circumcision and mm-hmm. um, what happens later and what happens later. Um, there is no ev- and you're absolutely right. Steve, and I will challenge uh, anyone listening to this, there is no evidence of infant circumcision, I'm sorry, there is no evidence of infant baptism in the New Testament. Everyone who gets baptized in the New Testament is someone who is able to decide for themselves that that's what they want for them. Totally 100% agree with this. I'm not saying I agree with it, but wouldn't the counterpoint to that be, for example, in Acts when the jailer in Philippi and his whole family are baptized? Yes. Were they infants, though? I mean, we don't know. And this is a good point. This is be- just because it doesn't say doesn't mean we assume we think we know. I understand what you're saying there. I think I'm just trying to make the point here of what Steve is saying, which is coming back to this idea that this is, this, and maybe this is the biggest part here. This is your choice. This should be your choice. This is the focus. This is not something that's just done to you. That, this idea that you have free will, you are choosing to be a disciple of Jesus. And, and again, this gets at the pathway to salvation is through faith, through your belief. It's not through an external act that has happened to you. So external circumcision, if you did it when you were six days old, you had no choice in that. Um, if you were baptized as an infant, many of us were, or christened, um, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't really mean anything as far as this idea that you have chosen that. That's all I'm trying to get at here. Jeremy. I'm just thinking about the accountability and I'm translating it to like a, a legal transaction. Mm-hmm. And I'm, it seems to me like it's an acceptance. That the baptism Ooh. is an acceptance. And what do you mean by an acceptance of what? Uh, if you give somebody an offer, you know, they review it. Okay. And then if they want to accept it, they sign it. 
I think it's kind of related to choice, but I agree there. The offer still stands. Yeah. And the, the permanency yep. is not permanent salvation uh, if you want to <coughs> connect, think that baptism <coughs> means you're saved. Mm -hmm. But it's that entryway. Uh, that's, that's really important. This is really important. You've asked the Holy, you know, you've accepted the Holy Spirit, you've asked him into your heart, but um, you have to have the faith. This is a big one. This is a big one. This is, this is absolutely true, Angela, and I'm going to agree with you, and I'm going to say related to salvation. It is core, uh, maybe even a better way is to say correlated. Is it one of the maybe a result of salvation. Could be a result of it, and, and that gets at this idea that it, you know, depending on what piece of this you're calling baptism, one thing happened after the other. I'll, I'll point you to the thief on the cross who was not baptized through water. Is he baptized with the Holy Spirit? The New Testament doesn't exactly say, but the New Testament does say what? Jesus says to the thief on the cross, we can read it in, we can read it in Luke 23. Who would like to read Luke 23, verses 42 to 43 for me? And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Was the thief on the cross saved? You better believe it. Was he immersed in water? Absolutely not. He gave a vocal affirmation. He gave a vocal affirmation. And, and my point here is now we have seen the separation. He believed. And let me, let me do this. He, do we have, the, we have the public affirmation. It would have been interesting to hear their conversation. Because yeah. that wasn't a... Exactly yep. what was said. That's right. That's bits and pieces. Yep. They have to believe there was more than the thief just saying, you know, Master, remember me. Mm -hmm. Kingdom, I'm sure he'd come a long way, and Jesus obviously acknowledged that he had made that movement over. I will, I will say that I agree with you in the sense that there was probably more said than we know. I will also offer this idea that at some point, I, and this is me, my interpretation of salvation is at some point when you are sure you want to follow Christ and he is who he says he is, something changes. Something here, you know, if you want to call it this, thief on the cross was baptized in what? It was certainly fire. And it was spirit. And he was baptized. Now, he didn't have the chance to get into water, and I've had people come to me and say, Brian, my father gave his life to Christ, and, and, he, and he died in the hospital, but he was not immersed in water. Is he going to heaven? And I have to say, the New Testament supports, if he truly believed, he is in heaven. I'll tell you what, it's kind of a very good point. It's a very good point. I don't want to take this on a tangent. Jesus died before the other two. I can guarantee you that. It took days for the average crucified person to die. 
and uh, it was a terrible, agonizing death. I guarantee you Jesus died first on that cross. Sidetrack. Side let's, let's read Romans 5. We've got to get back to Romans here. I've got to have it because I'm going to label it Romans 5. I'm not going to label it, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What is Christian baptism? Baptism represents death, burial, and resurrection yep. because he rose, we will too. God changes us. You can't, it's, we don't turn over a new leaf and say, oh, I'm going to be good. I'm going to do this and that. God changes us. Oh, so here is an answer to our question number three then. Is your righteousness earned or is it demonstrated? Which one? It's demonstrated, which means something came first for you to become righteous. And how do you become righteous? You accept, you believe, what? Surrender. You surrender, what? Believe, what? Believe Jesus is the Son of God. Believe God. And then God gives you righteousness, how? Um, he just gave it to you. It's grace. This is so hard for us to wrap our brains around, folks. By the time you're demonstrating righteousness, you're already made righteous. You're made righteous through... Again, the Greek here, dikaiosune, we've talked about that. That means to be justified or, or sanctified, to be made holy. You don't make yourself holy. Not a single person on this earth makes himself holy. God did it. It can only be given. It can only be given. That is an excellent, it can only be given. Not earned. And you, yeah. Yep. Given, it's a, it's a two-way street. One is given and one is accepted. Given and accepted. And, and accepted, we would say, is through faith, through belief. And then, let's see here. Does obedience lead to salvation or is it the other way around? <clears throat> this is so hard for us to understand. It really is. It really is. I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Because you have to take a step of obedience in order mm -hmm. to accept Gift. So it depends on what you mean by obedience then. And I get that. That's totally fair. So let's say obedience means 
not this. continuing in your sin, then obedience is after. It's a fruit. There you go. That's, this is it. This is it. This is, this is absolutely right. You're both right. So here, it's not one or the other. Here, it, it does lead to salvation when it only encompasses what? It's, accept, it's, it's faith, right? It's acceptance. It kind of relates to some of, and I want to be careful here, because it's not all of this. It's this one. Here, here's the, here's the pre-stuff. Repent. That's it. It's this. It's these right here. Yep. I'm not that. You know, he still Yep. This really is it. So, Heather, I totally agree with you. These are the, these are the, it's your choice. It's your acceptance of that free gift. Someone offered you a present and you just take it. You take it. And you repent. You say, yes, I'm going to change. From that point on, there is no more obedience leading to your salvation. Because you can't, you can't earn it. But if you truly are saved, and this gets at this whole idea of once saved, always saved, fruit of the spirit, fruit of the heart, if you truly are saved and you've accepted Christ as your personal savior and you're his disciple, what's going to flow from that? Obedience. Obedience. <laughs> I think it's a continual state of yep. choice, acceptance, and like every day you got to wake up and say, I choose God over yep. myself, over everything else. Ah. It's got to be a really thing. It's got to be a moment-to-moment thing at times. You have to, it's got to be an intentional you see in these first few verses, you know, no longer let sin reign in your life. You always have that that nagging um, sin at your door constantly. It's way too devouring. You have to constantly just say, no, I'm not going to do that. I choose God. I choose Christ. Um, yeah, it gets a little easier. It's just, but it's when you least expect it too. It's like, oh my goodness. Isn't this interesting? So we have both a case. This is like, look, no one in this room is a quantum, like quantum physics. I could probably talk about it. I don't even understand it. This idea that you can have two states of two opposite states at the same time. It is both permanent and continual. You're absolutely right, Roger. This idea that there is something continual that has to be happening in order for this to make sense. And in fact, let's read about that because the rest of Romans 6 talks about that. When you say... Yeah. When it says don't let sin reign, it almost suggests that you will, you are going to sin. You're going to continue to sin. Just don't let it. Yeah. I'm going to sin, yep. and I may do this thing, but don't let it, you know, continue. Ah, Find so what? A place to, to say, okay, whoops. So what you're saying here, Ken, maybe, and maybe I'm extrapolating, does salvation lead to moral perfection? Only in God's eyes. I really, uh, if it does, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> I'm in big trouble. Ooh, who said that? Who said only in God's eyes? Did you say that? I got, I literally got goosebumps. I'm not kidding. Ah. But my all my good works are rubbish 
works through me is this what it makes me righteous. It makes me justified when I stand before God. That is it. So, nothing that I can yeah. do or I can give all my money away. It doesn't say. So this is an excellent point. <clears throat> If only God can give something, you would assume only God can take it away. Paul was also responding kind of in chapter to his point in chapter yep. five about grace covering everything. Ah. And so he uses a he really uses absurdity to mm-hmm. further make his point. You know, should we keep on sinning so that there's all the more grace? Grace may not be sin more. Well, no, you idiots. Yep. Stop sinning because yep. The no you idiots is actually a Greek idiom (laughs) that you might have been translated, may it never be. In fact, the no you idiots, Paul uses more than anyone else in the New Testament, and he uses it 10 times alone in Romans. Because he's making this exact point that Steve is trying to say. It's true. Let's read, let's, let's keep going here. Let's read uh, Romans 6, let's do 15 to the end, which is 23. Who would like to read 15 to 23 for me? What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6. 23 is oft cited. I mean, most, most people have heard that if they don't, uh, haven't memorized it. This, this is so good. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you an example here. And, and I'm going to start this by saying, you all have masters that you serve. Whether you want to admit it or not, you are a servant or a slave to one or more masters. Here's an example. Let's say I'm an accountant and I have a job and I don't like my job. So I go get a different job. So I go from the old company to the new company. And my first two weeks on the job at the new company, I show up, I talk to people, make friends, I go out and eat lunch with them. The whole time I'm working there, I'm actually doing work for the old company on the side. Maybe I'm sending emails, maybe I'm actually using my computer to you know, do accounting. For two weeks this goes by, I'm showing up, I'm there physically. Mentally, I'm not there. I'm working for my old boss. I'm working for my old company. At the end of that two weeks, my boss comes to me at the new company, and he's been watching me this whole time. 
who is my boss going to say I'm serving? You know, I don't think it's any different. And Paul is making that exact case here. You can show up every week to church. You can say you've been baptized physically through water. Um, you can say all the right things and, you know, say I read my Bible, say I'm a good person. <clears throat> God knows the heart, though. This is it. You can't fool God. This is it. Problem is, who are we fooling when we do that? <laughs> you know, you're going to serve God or you're not going to serve him, and he's going to know. He's going to know. And, and this gets at where's your heart in all of this. Now, what Paul is going to say here is, and here's the Greek, you know, right at the beginning of Romans, he says he is a doulos for theos, a, a slave for God. Slave is doulos or servant, right? Who is his master? Master, this is a very common term for Jesus in the New Testament, which is kurios. It means your master. It's really the master of a slave. It can also be a boss. Um, it can be a, a high-ranking official. It's just a, it's a term of respect for someone over you. You know, who is your master in your life? This, this will cut you to the heart. Do you feel it's truly God and you're, and you're following Jesus as a disciple or are you just trying to put on a show? What do you guys think about that? You were describing about um, two different jobs. Hmm? My youngest daughter in Missouri is a paralegal. She was working for this, these two lawyers that uh, owned this company. And one got called up for JAG. Military called her up. Hmm? She's a lawyer for military. And the other man um, was um, studying to be a missionary. So he was taken off to be a missionary, and she was on the last one hired, and he left it on her lap. He had he had a friend in uh, Kansas City, and he offered to take his company. You know, mm -hmm. well of course they sent Nancy with them. He hired Nancy, the new guy hired Nancy, and the people. So she was doing she was closing up the old company. And working for the new guy too, and the peop the people in that that worked there said that wasn't fair because she was working for the old guy. She shouldn't get paid by the new guy. But they were um, they they took it over. You know they surely had that agreement set up that you know the old the new lawyer would take mm -hmm. over what the old lawyer did. And then she's faced with they're getting calls and she's got this call that this they want this. Uh, verified or this action to happen, but she had no document saying this had happened in 2003. She wasn't even working there in 2003, so it, it, it just became a problem because she was doing old files and new files, new new mm -hmm. lawyer work and the old lawyer work, and uh, she finally found a different job. <laughs> well, here and here's a good point, Lauren. This is a, actually a really good story. Um, not that they usually aren't. Uh, appreciate your stories. Um, here's my point. How hard is it to serve two masters at the same time? <laughs> and what does the Bible say about that kind of thing? Can man serve two masters at the same time, or women? Not well. That's the point. 
here's the here look your grace the grace that, that God has given you is for your benefit if you're trying to do two things at once you're going to do neither well thanks for a good comedic tragedy for a movie there you go right uh huh. <laughs> that was your Saturday night movie, I see. Your uh, rom com. There is another word here, and and it gets at this idea of grace, this idea of an un undeserved gift, charisma. What does that sound like? Charisma, right? Um, it's a little bit different because it has to do with, um, you know, the root of this, which means to smear or to, um, to um, appear a certain way. This is where we get our, our idea of charisma, like how you look on the outside, and, you know, tends to be people who are outgoing and make friends. Um, but this is a word that's really for the idea of grace or undeserved kindness or favor. This is really a word that's only used by Christians, for the most part, in Greek literature, at least as far as we know. It's something that was kind of adopted by the Christian community. <coughs> It gets this idea that God's grace has covered you and your sins totally, not part, in whole. Now here's the problem. And this is what, you know, to Paul's thing, look you idiots, <laughs> you can't just say you're a Christian and go on sinning. And, and you can't, and, and the argument here too is this idea of cheap grace. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. This idea that, well I can say I'm a Christian, and I'm following Jesus, but now I can go back to sin even more and just do whatever I want. Um, <laughs> Or um, it won't matter because by doing that, I'm somehow making God even more great because <laughs> he'll cover all of my sins. What is the problem with this statement? Does Jesus' love excuse bad behavior? Is it true? Why not? I keep, I keep thinking about later when Paul says, talking about food that's been offered to idols. And <coughs> This is a really good one. This, this is exactly it. This is this idea that my freedom somehow gives me the right, the, 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 the free pass to do whatever I want. Um, it really hurts my heart when I hear people say, well, it doesn't matter that I did X, which is obviously a very bad moral thing, because Jesus loves me, and it'll be okay. Well, does Jesus love you? Absolutely. Don't get me wrong here. Does that mean that you are baptized with the Holy Spirit? <laughs> Absolutely not. Look, I'm sorry, folks, and I'm sorry, and you know, if you hear this and you, you may hate this, Jesus' love for you is not an excuse for you to go out and do whatever you want. And in fact, you have to go back to this idea of this obedience and fruit. And where did we have that? That was over here. Bearing fruit. Look. If you are truly saved, a disciple of Jesus, you will bear fruit. It should be seen and evident on the outside. And what is that? That's being holy, right? <clears throat> being separate. So we're being a righteous living will make us more holy or learn to be more And does Jesus love, love you? Jesus loves every single person on this earth. There, did Jesus love Adolf Hitler? Yeah. He loved him just as much as he loves you. I, I, I'm sorry if that hurts you. Does, did he love Joseph Stalin? Uh, of course, with all of his heart. 
do we think those people were disciples of Jesus? It's not for us to say, and I'm not going to say it. I'm just saying, um, at some level, Jesus does love you. And you are loved by God more than you can possibly imagine. Um, It's not an excuse. It's not a free ticket. Your baptism wasn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, And it gets at this tight thing. Are you going to continue to sin? Are you going to? Yeah. So whenever I read through this part of Romans, what I always come back to is, while he uses a lot of imperatives and a lot of command styles, and I'm going to go somewhere that's going to reveal that I'm far too Calvinistic for my own good, (laughs) but um, is that even though he uses these commands, you know, do not do this, do Mm -hmm. this, do not do this, he's really making an argument that has a conclusion. (coughs) You know, it comes down to verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you Mm -hmm. since you are not under law but under grace. Mm -hmm. He may be using these commands, but I don't think they should be read as a list of actions or, Uh, to use the word that was getting thrown around earlier, mm -hmm. choices. Mm -hmm. It's, if you, if you are this way, this is the result, this is the conclusion. Mm -hmm. It's more of a, it's, it's more of a, logical legal argument mm-hmm. where he's putting together these premises yeah. of don't do this do this don't do mm-hmm. this because if you are this you will be this honestly nathan i think you can absolutely agree with that statement i personally agree with that statement whether or not you even bring calvinism into it uh and and brother if you like calvinism romans is your thing we're going to get to that i have a whole handout on that uh <laughs> we'll get there this is a great point, Ken, and I think this is what keeps a lot of people from a true discipleship with Jesus is their shame, is I am too bad to have been accepted by Jesus. 
that's good. Any other closing so thoughts? What do you do with that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Send more so the grace may not more. By no means. It's been a really good discussion. Any final thoughts, comments? To tag on to that, though, then if it is our shame and not our sin that drives us out, then why is God declared to be holy and righteous in punishing sin throughout mm. so much of the Bible? And this, I, I love that, that question, comment, Nathan. It gets at this idea of what does sanctification or justification mean? Justification means to make just. The great thing, and I tell you, a lot of people have a problem with this too. Why does God punish sin? Because he is a God of righteousness. He is a God of justice. He believes in doing the right thing. And he believes in you doing the right thing. Are you always going to do the right thing, even if you're saved? Should it be the direction of your compass to do the right thing? Absolutely. And this gets at that. Thank you. Great conversation. We'll pick this up again next week.